Welcome, and thank you for listening to this presentation hosted by the Center for Catholic Studies, located at Durham University in Durham, United Kingdom, a center for Catholic theology in the Public Academy. For more information, visit our website at www.centerforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at CCSDHAM. The following lecture was presented in July 2019 at the Biennial Conference on Catholicism, Literature, and the Arts, organized in partnership by the Center for Catholic Studies, the University of Notre Dame, and Ushaw College. The following lecture is given by Professor David Crystal, Honorary Professor of Linguistics at the University of Wales, Bangor, and is entitled, The Most Prolific Poet Ever, Where Next for John Bradburn? Well, thank you, Stephen, uh, and uh, good evening, everybody. Well, congratulations on emailing the right David Crystal, uh, <laughs> listening to Paul earlier on and realizing that there are multiple Paul Murrays in the room. Uh, only three, though. Uh, you're not trying Paul Murrays. There are four David Crystals about. Uh, there is a David, if you go to the internet, there is a David Crystal fashion designer, which I am not, um, a dentist, which I am not, and also a Scottish erotic poet. <laughs> and when I went to India for the British Council, uh, the librarian there, thinking she's going to do a good job, he googled David Crystal, pulled out all the poetry she could find, and when I arrived at the library, there was my stuff, and there was the Scottish erotic poem as well. And I was slightly embarrassed for only a second or two because I suddenly realized that my stock had grown enormously. The Indian audience thought this was wonderful, that he wasn't just a linguist, uh, he writes erotic poetry as well. So, anyway, right, well, I didn't know who he was either. Uh, I was completely oblivious of John Bradburn until one of those extraordinary events took place. So here's me leaving the University of Reading uh, back in 1984 to become, as the Japanese put it, uh, independent scholar. Uh, they, I did say freelance, but they said, no, that is for journalists. Uh, you are independent scholar. Um, and moved up to Hollyhead in North Wales, where I was brought up once upon a time. And uh, we were looking for a house, Hilary and I, and we found one at the top of the street, um, cul-de-sac there, and we bought it, and I suddenly realised it had been owned by the um, parents of a lad I went to school with called Kevin Jones, or K.C. Jones, and thus Casey Jones, right? That's important, because he was an itinerant musician, and that's all I knew. Anyway, Kevin used to come back to the house every now and again, because it was his house too, you see, and we would talk. And one day, he pulls out of his pocket um, a verse letter and says to me, have you ever seen anything like this? And I looked at it, and I hadn't. It was a letter addressed to Casey just chatting about this, that, and the other, entirely in verse, from John Bradburn. It appeared that Casey had been uh, travelling around southern Africa, had fallen ill at one point, and went to uh, Salisbury, as it was in those days, uh, and was looked after in the local mission centre there by John Bradburn, who was there at the time. And they were both musicians, 
Bradburn, of course, not just a singer, but a recorder player and a harmonium player and so on. Uh, and they kept in touch and exchanged a few letters. And this was one of the letters. And I read it, and I'd never read anything like it before. Absolutely not. Uh, if you want to read it, it's here on one of the display boards, which I'll tell you about in a moment. And uh, I said to Kevin, the, the stupidest thing I ever said in my life, I said, is there any more like that? <laughs> and he said, I'll check. Uh, and he got in touch with the John Bradburn Memorial Society, uh, which was based down in Lemster. And three weeks later, at my address, they had evidently been looking for a mug uh, for some time uh, to edit this oeuvre. And along comes a suitcase. And if you had put all the poems uh, one on top of the other, they would have reached up to my shoulder. And I looked at this lot and said, what? I mean, I'm just a linguist here. Uh, you know, I've got things to do. Uh, really? And then started reading and the story began there. The most prolific poet ever, full stop, not question mark, according to Guinness World Records. <laughs> At one point, you see, having heard this rumour that John Bradburn had written more poetry than anybody else in the world, in English, I mean, I don't know about other languages, um, they got in touch with me and, and said, well, you know, how, how do you quantify poetry? I said, I don't know, how do you? Uh, and they said, we don't know. We don't know what a poem is. This is Guinness talking. We don't know what a poem is. How, how do you define poetry? I said, look, why don't you just count the lines? I said, half jokingly. And they said, what a good idea. <laughs> and so if you now go to Guinness World Records and look at poets, you'll find that they're all identified in terms of the number of lines of verse that they've produced. And I'm to blame for that. Um, there are better criteria, but Guinness <laughs> as yet have not discovered them. Anyway, um, I th they said, we've heard that you think that John Bradburn wrote more. How many lines did he write? Well, I, I was in the process of putting everything online. And so we had a little program from my techie. Um, which every tags every line, and uh, so I was able to count them up. And they said, well, what about other poets? I thought, oops, ooh, right, okay, so I did some counting. It was the most boring week of my life, I have to say. Uh, so I counted all the lines in Milton and got up to about 20,000, and I counted all the lines in Wordsworth and got up to about 50,000, and then I counted all the words, lines in Shakespeare, because one of my other lives... Uh, as Stephen has mentioned, as we run the website shakespeareswords.com, so all the canon is in there, and every line is tagged for prose or poetry, or verse, really, I suppose you should say. Um, and Shakespeare comes out as just under 90,000 uh, lines. John Bradburn wrote 170,000 lines. To be precise, 170,287 and I quote that precisely because in January of this year, if you went to the website, it would have told you 170,016. Now what's happened? Well, because John Bradburn wrote verse letters to everybody, people in those days just got a letter from him. All right, it's in verse. I'll just put it in my drawer, uh, in the attic or something and forget all about it. And then, now that things are buzzing, they are discovering these, I'm sure I've got a John Bradburn letter somewhere. And they get it, and they send it to the Memorial Society, who then sends it on to me. 
and just two months ago, seven new poems came through the post that nobody had discovered before. So I do not know how many lines John Bradburn has written. These are the ones that we have at the moment. Altogether, 5,296 poems um, you have on your handout, uh, a small handful of them. Um, how do you choose? Well, uh, Maria's just told us, really, choose the ones you like. Uh, and so I just went through and pulled out half a dozen, um, which I'm not going to read to you apart from one. Uh, because I don't believe in hand-out hand karaoke uh, any more than I believe in PowerPoint karaoke. Uh, so read these as you wish. When the talk gets a bit dull, uh, do some reading. Um, but what I've chosen is uh, one of his, his Trinity poems at the top, then one of his leper poems, which I'll explain in a moment, and then one of his nature poems, and then on the back, uh, one of his poems that turns out to be perhaps the most famous one in the sense that anybody who has read John Bradburn at length at some point or other will focus on this uh, 1971 love poem. It was read, for example, at Celia Brigstock's funeral uh, last year. Celia was John's niece. She died last year. Um, and then the little one at the end, which I love simply because he compares himself to Shakespeare um, when Shakespeare died at only 52. Behold, he told the thoughts of all mankind. There is no shade of mood in me nor you, which in Will's way may not expression find. But since himself that bard has done this thing in such a princely manner for the throng, shall I endeavor to go echoing? Or shall I tintinabulate his song? Say nay, it were a nightmare travesty to try to gild the lily of his art, which is as if the Holy Ghost made free both on our mortal and immortal part. My age is 53. My lines are many, and almost all of them not read by any. <laughs> oh, yes, he was so sad. Hardly any of his poetry was ever published in his lifetime. I know of six only, uh, mainly published in South African journals of one kind and another. Um, so, not any more, John, not any more, almost not read by any. Uh, so, we have this total. Um, these are the surviving poems. He birds an unknown number. He is extremely self-critical about his poetry. At one point, he says he wanted to burn a lot, but he didn't. But in a letter to his mother in 1974, he says... Dearest mother, this is on the, uh, this is in prose, this little bit. Uh, Would you please do me a great favour, my dear, and burn all the contents of the Mafeking briefcase, except the two thick, hard-covered exercise books you gave me. Be ruthless and uninquiring. <laughs> I am writing a lot out here. Writing and selecting and destroying and resurrecting. These are the two hardback books that he's talking about. Uh, they're here for you to have a look at and thumb through, if you wish. Uh, this one is his longest poem, if you can call it a poem, of 10,000 lines. Uh, it's uh, full of art, as you see. Uh, a, in some senses, he's an ideal subject for this particular conference because of his combination of art and music. Um, I'll talk more about it in just a moment, that's one of them. This is the other hardback one, again with some art on the front and 
large quantities of lovely blue copper plate handwriting inside. What you will see here actually are two selections of types of his writing, uh, plus a number of the small exercise books in which he wrote, and I'll explain those in just a moment. Um, in brief, Didier Rance has written a biography published by Darton, Longman and Todd um, of uh, John Bradburn. It is a very thick book. It was published in French, first of all, about five years ago. Got uh, a prize for the, forgotten the name of the prize, but you know what the big Catholic literature prize there is in France. He got that for that biography. Uh, it was translated into English uh, just last year, or was it the year before? Uh, it's a huge book, and therefore I summarize it um, with, as it were, one sentence per chapter. Um, John Randall Bradburn, born in Skirworth in Cumbria in 1921. Um, tiny little place, not far from Penrith. Cross Fell, just above in the Pennines. Uh, he went to school in various places, mainly in Nor uh, near Norwich, in Holt School. Gresham's in Holt. Um, he went to war, 1939, fought in the Far East uh, very bravely by all accounts. Uh, Didier gives a very graphic account of his service in the army out there. Um, was uh, recommended for the military cross. He was evidently a very brave man. Uh, the story of his escape from Japanese occupied territory there is extraordinary, and it's amazing that he survived. He then went to India, uh, where he recuperated and got to know Buddhism and various other uh, local religions there. Evidently had some sort of spiritual experience while he was um, in, in the army, a vision of Mary, it is thought. Uh, that sent him into a, uh, a spiral of interest um, in religious, in spirituality, really, partly fueled by his friend John Dove, who he met in the army, uh, and John Dove later became a Jesuit, and his earlier biography of John Bradburn is also outside. Um, the two Johns came back to England, John Dove trained to be a Jesuit, as I just said. John Bradburn did not know what he wanted to do, he, or something I did not mention, he was reared in Skirwith as the son of an Anglican vicar. So his entire early background is uh, in that faith. Uh, he came back, but having the influence of John Dove and possibly the Virgin personally and various other readings that he was doing, he came back, uh, wandered around, wondering what to do, ended up at Buckfast was uh, converted there to Catholicism on the Feast of Christ the King. Uh, still didn't know what he wanted to do. Asked whether he could join Buckfast. They said no, he wasn't right, uh, eventually. Uh, he did try for a while. That's where he learned about bees from Brother Adam at Buckfast. Come back to that in a little while. He then went and tried innumerable uh, places, three main monasteries around the country. He turned up there, knocked on the door. Can I come in? I'd like to be a monk with you, please. Um, and they tried him out, as it were, and either they kicked him out or he left of his own accord, one way or the other. Went uh, traveling around Europe, um, wanted to go to Israel, mission to convert the Jews. Um, found it difficult. 
<laughs> stood, in, stood in front of the Western Wall singing, singing psalms, actually, uh, Maria, singing psalms, um, and uh, being praised by some local rabbis for doing so, actually. Um, Travelling around, uh, went to Louvain for several months to again try another order. Uh, went to Italy, became sacristan of a church there. Uh, became enamoured of St. Francis, eventually became a third order Franciscan. Uh, came back to this country, kept travelling around, became sacristan at Westminster Cathedral, assistant sacristan, there were several assistants in those days. Um, for several years, looked after Archbishop Godfrey at Hare House in Hertfordshire, the, um, the, the Archbishop's house there. Worked in the Burns and Oates uh, bookshop there for a little while, remember Burns and Oates? Mm -hmm. uh, and did all these things and did not know what he wanted to do at all. And so much of his poetry written in those days, uh, basically poems saying, you know, what's it all, you know, what am I supposed to be doing, as it were. And then he wrote to John Dove who by that time had gone to a missionary centre in Rhodesia, southern Rhodesia, as it was at the time, said, please can you find me a cave in which I can come and pray? And John said, well, why not come out here? And he did. And he spent some time then in Silvera House in Salisbury, which was the Jesuit mission centre, which is where Kevin Jones met him. And then one day was taken out to uh, a little settlement called Mutemwa, which is a leprosy settlement a hundred miles northeast of uh, Harare, as it is now. Uh, walked into the settlement, saw the filth and the disgusting state in which the lepers were, these people crawling around the floor, not being looked after, eating food out of cans on the floor that the dogs had just eaten from, uh, turned to his friend Heather, who had brought him there, and said, I am not leaving here. Um, uh, she was horrified, of course, because uh, you know, how, how can this be? But to cut the story short, he went back to Silvera House for a day or two, then came back and stayed the rest of his life at Mutemwa, looking after the lepers there. He had three wishes, it is said earlier on by John Dove. One was to uh, serve lepers um, as, far as, he could, as far as it would be possible. Uh, secondly, to die a martyr, and thirdly, to be buried in his Franciscan habit. These three wishes uh, were to be fulfilled. The first one you've just heard about. The uh, second one, to die a martyr, happened in 1979. The Rhodesian Civil War was then at its height, and anybody who was white uh, living in the north of the country was assumed to be a spy on behalf of the government, and he was told in no uncertain terms that he should leave on several occasions. He refused to leave. He was not going to leave his letters. Uh, they, they were his care. Uh, and we'll see why in just a moment. He wrote so many poems about them. Um, he refused to leave. So one day, September 3rd, 1979, they abducted him, took him away, interrogated him. Didier Rance gives a very detailed account, having interviewed now many of the witnesses to those events at the time. Uh, took him away. Uh, gave him a, a, almost a parallel passion um, experience um, and shot him. Uh, at his funeral, uh, a few days later in Salisbury, 
the first of the many events that are now associated with his life uh, happened. Uh, the uh, uh, coffin was at the top of the aisle. Uh, every, the mass was halfway through, and the celebrant noticed that under the coffin uh, there were three drops of blood. Um, he pointed this out to the undertaker, who was, if you'll pardon the pun, mortified, <laughs> um, because he thought that the, uh, he had not prepared the body well, and that was his reputation down the drain. Uh, so the mass was halted for a moment, and they took the uh, coffin out into the sacristy, opened it up. There was no sign of any blood there, uh, but what was noticed that he was not wearing his Franciscan habit. And so that was sent for, and he was dressed in it, and that was his third wish. Um, since that time, the Matemwa has become, as it were, a local Fatima. Um, it has become a place of pilgrimage. Uh, every year on the anniversary, thousands of people, sometimes over 10,000 people, in Zim these days. And it's so difficult in Zim to move around. Oh, but still they come. Uh, and they go and hear Mass there and go up the mountain that he prayed at and generally have a great spiritual time. And the John Bradburn Memorial Society, which was founded, as I said, well, I didn't say, but in the early 90s, um, has been collecting testimonies about intercessions uh, made through John. Um, so far, uh, a couple of jolly good miracles have been recorded, uh, but hundreds, you know, thousands of testimonies of one kind and another. Um, so that his course for sainthood uh, then uh, became uh, increasingly demanded. By whom? This is not one of those top-down Arguments. This is a bottom-up argument. It was the people, the ordinary people in Zin, who said, this guy is a saint. In fact, all the stories in Didier Rons' biographies say everybody who met John Bradburn say he was a saint, including the guy who wrote the uh, preface to, to Didier Rons' biography, von Jean Vanier, who writes, The story of John's life has touched me, heart and soul, and brought me close to God. It has revealed to me a God wonderfully full of surprises, better, more intelligent, more creative than we could imagine, an extraordinary God who cannot be confined in rational concepts or an ordinary religious life. John, God's jester, has confirmed me in my life in L'Arche. Now that's pretty powerful coming from him, but there are parallel quotations from all sorts of people which fostered this movement towards eventual uh, canonization. It took a long time, though, you see, uh, because there was this other chap that was being suggested, this other English saint that was a person that was supposed to be being proposed for sainthood. What was his name? It's gone. It's slipped my mind at the moment. But... That was taking up all the energy. His canonization, of course, is now, we all know, in October of this year. And as you know, if you're into canonization, I wasn't at all. I, I didn't know anything about it, about how the Vatican works in these things. Oof, now I know. <laughs> it's complicated uh, and time-consuming. And I went with the John Bradburn Memorial Society people to see Vincent Nichols a few years ago to ask whether um, 
the, uh, the cause could proceed at Westminster, because after all, the guy did work at Westminster and so on. There was a sacristan there and everything. And they all went, oh, I don't know about this. And I actually heard one of the priests say to the other, how many saints have we actually got at the moment? Uh, there was a sort of, apparently there is a great pecking order of sainthood. Paul Murray will probably tell us far more about this, being associated with these things. Um, but I was learning all this for the first time and not quite sure what, what to listen to or believe. But anyway, the point is, um, Cardinal Vincent didn't feel that this was going to be a primary thing for Westminster, and in any case, the Newman issue was building up, and you know, it's a bit like buses, you know, <laughs> none for ages, and then two at once, uh, I mean, really, I don't think I can handle this. So there was a long delay, a long delay um, in the movement, uh, grassroots level, everywhere people were saying, in Zin, not so much in this country, because who knew? Who knew John Bradbury in this country? Uh, you know, why isn't he a saint yet? Why isn't he a saint yet? He's coming out of Zimbabwe. So the thought was, well, have, let's have the Zimbabwean bishops um, announce the cause. But Zim was in a terrible state in the 1990s and in the early 2000s. And the, bishop, the archbishop there uh, simply said, we, we cannot handle something as complex as this. Uh, we just are not in that kind of state. But then, uh, two years ago, things changed. And to cut the uh, background story short a, a little bit, uh, two years ago, uh, where are we, 19, 2019, the beginning of 2018, a postulator was appointed to investigate the cause um, by Rome, uh, a ecclesiastical judge from Perugia. Uh, he then went around and started to collect evidence uh, and met all the witnesses that he could. He came to this country, he's been to Zimbabwe. He interrogated me. Have you ever been interrogated by a postulator? Uh, last time I had such a questioning was when I was doing my PhD. Um, it, it was amazing. Uh, the questions, uh, it was hours and hours. And he did this for everybody. But Dossier is building up and building up and building up. It was an extraordinary experience. Um, and uh, that was going on at some length last year, but still no cause announceable because the tradition is that the cause should be announced by the, the place where the person died, and that was Zim. And then uh, this year, things changed um, for a whole host of political and other reasons. In April of this year, the Zimbabwean bishops unanimously um, voted to take the cause forward. Uh, they then wrote to the Congregation of Causes of Saints in, in Rome uh, and were waiting for a reply uh, to that, which came through last Monday. <laughs> and here is the letter, if you'd like to read it later. If your Latin is good enough, <laughs> I have never had a letter in Latin in my life before. Thought I would never need to use all that stuff about declensions and conjugations that was beaten into me by the Christian brothers in Liverpool back in the 1950s. Um, but suddenly I realised, I can read this, it really is rather good. Nihil obstat, it says, in the proposal for the cause to go forward. This has delighted, of course, Archbishop Ndlovu and the others in Zim. The cause will therefore be announced, uh, formally launched on the 5th of September this year at Mutemwa. Uh, and there will be a celebratory uh, occasion at Westminster Cathedral 
on the 21st of September in the afternoon, which is when the cause will, I imagine, suddenly become very widely known in this country. So that's the sort of biographical uh, background to what's going on here. And I say, hot off the press, nobody else in the country knows this except you and me and one or two others. And Paul Murray, of course, probably knew this ages ago, actually. That's Paul Murray number one, I mean, not Paul Murray number two and three. Although I don't know, you guys keep your eyes closely on these things. You can be close, right? Anyway, themes, themes, what is he right about? Well, let him speak. He writes in a letter to his mother, right? To come first to what matters most, the Blessed Trinity. This is the most important message of the purpose and purport of my life. And he then just switches into verse, you see, that bit is in prose. The thought, the word, the voice are persons three of love, in love, with love, forevermore. I am assured that it is up to me to write this down as clown and troubadour. He's been told he's got to do this. Who told him? Blessed well, Virgin did. Yeah, his other mum. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he writes a lot about the instruction he gets from her. He says, I never worry about what I have to say. She tells me. And he writes, as you'll hear, extraordinary writing. That's his main theme, the Trinity. There are about 400 poems addressed to do with the Trinity in the oeuvre. His second main theme is Marian. He's a great Marian poet. His third theme is Franciscan. He's a great poet of poverty. He writes poems for every leper in the colony there, sometimes more than one. You'll re I'll read one in just a moment. He's a great uh, Carthusian poet in the sense that he emphasizes solitude and uh, his desire for solitude is where the bees come in. Because when he was in uh, Silvera House, he simply wanted to be shut away in a cell. He had to do various jobs around the place, of course. But when he was on his own, he just wanted to be left alone. However, at that time, his reputation was growing as a poet in the country, and people wanted to come and see him. He did not want them to come and see him. He just wanted to be alone. So he prayed for bees to come and protect him. And a swarm of bees duly arrived. And they, these are African bees, by the way. They sting very badly. Uh, he invites them in, gives them uh, prune juice and things like this, and they settle in his cell in front of where he is typing his poems. And therefore nobody comes in, because they are scared stiff of these bees. Uh, and he is now very, very happy because the bees are protecting him. And so, whenever uh, something happens in relation to John Bradburn, do expect a bee or two to turn up. This is one of the signs of a Bradburnian situation, that bees <laughs> will suddenly appear, and I'm expecting on any minute now, actually. No, it's a moth. Uh, well, anyway. Um, so, uh, a great ecological poet, he only ever gets really angry when people, as they were doing in those days, do things like chop down trees uh, and things like that. He's a great poet of ecology, a great nature poet. He writes uh, a lot about the landscapes of of Rhodesia um, and about the fauna and flora there. But above all, to my mind, he's a great human poet. He writes, as I said, a lot about the lepers. 
He writes about everyday life. He writes about the joys of having a cup of tea. He writes about his illnesses. He writes about the fact, whatever is happening to him, he writes about it. Uh, he writes a poem about constipation, for example. Now, you know, do we know that Wordsworth was constipated? We do not know. Uh, do we know any other poet in the history of the English language saying that they were constipated? No, we do not. I don't think so. I'm just a linguist here. Uh, you tell me. But he, and the point is, the constipation is just not written about as constipation. Eventually, it becomes theological. You can explore that for yourselves later. Um, what kind of poet is he? Well, you'll see some examples here. As I've mentioned, he's a poet who cannot write prose. Or when he has to, he does, but he's very reluctant to do so. So he writes again to his mother at one point, writing in anything other than verse is to me a sterile, fruitless, and abortive pain. So I am sure you will allow me the pleasure of replying in verse, and in verse of giving you what news and paschal tidings I may have. And then off he goes about set, talking about life and times and how's the family and all of this, but in... Now, what kind of verse? Well, a very traditional kind of verse. We see rhyme, metre, sonnets, lots of alliteration, lots of assonance, all those traditional things in poetry that for many years went out of fashion. Christopher Howes wrote a review of um, one of the books, Birds, Bees and Beasts, I think, in the tablet a few years ago when it came out, and uh, drew attention to the fact that John Bradburn wrote ballads, uh, ballads in the traditional medieval sense. So in terms of form, uh, three eight-liners, A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D, three times, and then uh, 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 an envoi beginning prince or something of that kind, another four-line. He's done hundreds and hundreds of ballads. Christopher Howe says, who writes ballads these days? You know, it is a surprisingly traditional kind of writing that we get here. Full of uh, humour, full of puns, uh, we were talking a little earlier about uh, uh, poetry and its friends or foe and so on. Um, for John Bradburn, God loves a laugh. Uh, he loves puns and spends a lot of time ex trying to explicate that uh, in insight. And to illustrate the kind of complexity of the poetry, uh, let me draw your attention to the second one on the handout, Timu. Timu is one of the lepers. He's one of the lepers whose job it is to look after the hens, uh, and that's part of the theme of the poem. So, off we go. Timu's no time. Athens were to him, inseparable word from hens at hand. Many a time I greet him daily. Tim ever is bright. Dimness to him is banned. Intent on converse and on getting round wondrously well on only hands and knees, enters he here and there, All's fairy ground native to happy Tim, who's born to please. The produce of his poultry he will beg that I may purchase any time I pass, only providing that it is an egg, but not a chicken cheeping. Fresh is grass, even as I am flesh. Three pence a time duly I pay, and Timu's lays sublime. So, a nice little sonnet. Uh, Proper rhyme scheme, as you'd expect, good meter, as you'd expect, a bit of alliteration here and there, all the things that you associate with traditional poetry. But did you notice the acrostic 
Read the first letter of each line down. Time I went to bed. <laughs> This is clever stuff. And what's clever about it is the fact that that was written line by line by line with no pause between the writing of each line. John Bradburn wrote poetry, and I don't have any parallel for this. I did Lang and Lit when I was at uni, back at UCL, and one of my colleagues there when I joined the staff there was Tony Petty, who some of you may remember did a collection of monograph hands, uh, manuscript hands, and you look at all these poets like Dylan Thomas and so on and so forth, there's crossings out all over the place and clearly a great deal of pain and effort and I don't know how quickly you write your poems, Maria, but um, you know, any of us who have tried, I've tried, I've done some poems in my time and I write a line and I think, oh no, it's not right, and I try again, and oh, I don't know. I actually once, when I was doing something for a book of poetry I did once, um, I thought, doing it online, thought I'll keep every draft. Every time I make a change, I'll record it. And this tiny little poem, I forget how many lines now, but it's only that big, you have 400 uh, <laughs> drafts on the flipping computer. Uh, this is not John Bradburn's way. John Bradburn writes poetry at speed and without the need for correction. If you look at this 10,000 line oeuvre here, you can't see it, of course, in the distance there, but here it goes, page after page after page after page after page, with not a single correction in any of it. What is going on here? That is what I want you to tell me at some point. Remember, I'm just the linguist here. I'm just the editor. I'm no literary critic. Uh, I, I, I want to know what's going on in this sort of thing. The speed of writing is amazing. How do we know? For two reasons. There's two pieces of evidence. One is that occasionally, he didn't sleep very much, uh, and in the middle of the night, there are lots of poems headed um, in Medio Nocte. And he sometimes starts a poem by saying it's 2.04 in the morning. And then he writes this poem. And then at the end, he says, and now it's 2.23. So we know he was writing a line in you know, 20, 30 seconds or something of that kind. Somebody actually observed this happening. Uh, he had friends in St. Albans in Hertfordshire, and uh, as he was about to leave their house, they asked him to write something in their visitor's book, and he wrote a poem in the visitor's book. So they saw him do it, and it just goes, brum, 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 brum. and the implication is that all the poems are written like that. Certainly there's very little sign of self-correction. Uh, not when he, well, we'll come on to that in just a second. So that's the first thing, the speed of writing, a lack of corrections. The other amazing thing, the thing that struck me very quickly and still doesn't cease to amaze me, is how do you write poetry in a country where there is no paper and there is no internet? Remember, 1960s, 70s, we're talking about. 
and where you don't have a typewriter either until somebody sends you one. But then you've got your typewriter, but there's no paper to put in it. What do you do? It's a real problem. Uh, to begin with, he writes poems in whatever he can get hold of, like a little school exercise book that he finds. And so, uh, you know, there's your poem. It's in the school exercise book. Uh, here's another example, <coughs> same sort of thing. Another pictures, the arithmetical tables on the back here with a picture of um, uh, Colston Church on top of it. Uh, but the pages inside filled with writing. So there are some examples of that here. He's got a good stock of airmail letters. And so when he's not using them, he writes poems on them. So the blue stuff here is a poem written on an airmail letter. And there's another one over there. Addressed to anybody, Casey's poem, you see, was written in that way. This is a poem to his mother. As far as typing is concerned, when he gets the typewriter, uh, sometimes he does have some paper. He gets little batches of it through from Silvera House, but often he doesn't. But on the other hand, he does have a pile of stencils. And so here's, on this side, is a poem written on one of those old Romeo stencils. Do you remember them? Uh, which you're supposed to then print off hundreds of copies of. But he hasn't got a printing machine or anything, so he just writes, types the poem onto the stencil. So here is your task, folks. Here is a stencil with nothing on it. Now write your poem, please. Type your poem. No mistakes, please, because you can't change something written like that. Do make sure that the poem ends at the bottom of the stencil with no run-on to the next page, please. Make sure of that, won't you? And that's what he does. I mean, that's the most remarkable thing to me, that he manages to write a beautifully crafted poem. It is craft. It, it, free verse, not for him. Not at all. He hates free verse. He says it several times. No, this is, if you've got two ballads, or whatever it is, they will fit quite nicely into a certain page. And if they don't, then he will make the second one somehow or other fit. What the effect is on the evaluation of the poetry is where I have to say, I, I, I cannot say. Um, I, I, I lack the background here. I, I don't have the necessary skills to be able to evaluate this stuff when that kind of thing happens. And also, this sort of thing. I mean, if people ask me, You've written so much, is the poetry any good? Well, it goes from sublime to ridiculous. Bradburn himself calls it doggerel. Uh, and some of the, his, his worst writing is doggerel. Some of his best writing is sublime. Now, how do you evaluate that, that scale of, of beauty, of effectiveness, and so on? This sort of thing would happen, you see. Remember. You're in Temwe. Your job is to look after the lepers. You are the warden of the settlement. And so you have to go around all the time and check their sores and give them the food, give them food, and give them the medicine and things like this. But really all you want to do is uh, stay in your little tin hut and worship God and write poetry. That's all you really want to do and be a hermit. 
you can't anymore because the lepers are out there demanding you all the time. So you st you've got the evening now. Right, fine, settle down. Start my poem. And he starts writing a poem about whatever it might be, um, about the Trinity, shall we say. And then suddenly, about two or three verses in, there's a knock on the door. Uh, Joshua is, is not well, Comes, come to Joshua. So he has to leave the thing in the, in the poem, or in the typewriter, or sometimes in one of the manuscripts, go off into the Temwa, sort Joshua out, and one of the things that Joshua had been doing, shall we say, is uh, collecting apples uh, from the orchard. And so he gives Joshua an apple, and he takes some apples and gives them out to various people. Comes back now into his cell and carries on the poem. But now apples are at the top of his mind. And so the next verse is all about apples. So suddenly a verse that previously had been about the Trinity and now becomes one about apples. Now he notices this, and then suddenly you get some kind of apple allusion to the truth. <laughs> this is the point at which I say, oh, come on, John, I, I, I need help here. Um, he's doing this a lot. Is this a strength or is it a weakness? I don't know. I don't know how to evaluate this kind of thing. I've never read anything like this before, where the context of the writing dictates the content of the text. In so many, 10,000 lines on one theme, not at all. You could probably um, say there were 50 or 100 poems in there. Indeed, when I was putting that online, I couldn't put it into one single file. That would have been absurd. No, I broke it down into what I thought were reasonable sort of poetic chunks, points at which he clearly changes direction. And the whole thing is a single thing, but is it really? Is it possible to talk about an aesthetic whole for something as diverse and as long as that? Again, I don't know. I'd like you to tell me. And this is the point, really, that up until now, hardly any of uh, John's poetry has been evaluated from your, your world. Uh, I know of, some of you will know Helen Wilcox uh, at Bangor, um, Professor Helen Wilcox. She's written a piece on uh, Herbert's uh, and, and John Bradburn, Herbert influenced on John Bradburn. Um, I, went, I was invited over to the Hopkins Society in uh, Ireland a few years ago, and there was a whole session devoted to Hopkins in relation to John Bradburn. Lots of parallels there, of course, as you, as you can immediately see. I know of a couple of MA theses that have been written, mainly in the Southern Africa area. Um, but apart from that, nothing. Uh, it's just waiting, you know, for somebody to dive into this, but beware. <laughs> my job has been relatively simple. Um, my task was to put all the stuff online. It is now all online. Uh, Um I added a, a tiny amount of editorial apparatus, uh, you know, the sort of thing you'd expect, you know, what sort of paper is it written on, and so on and so forth. Uh, sometimes there are two versions of a poem, and so I would draw attention to the differences. That kind of rather basic, you know, Arden-like uh, editorial uh, 
comment. I don't mean the ardent notes at the bottom, I mean the ardent notes in the middle. Um, just to put the poems in a bit of context, or explain a little bit about the context, put a date in, you know, that sort of thing. But no uh, evaluation at all there. And so this is what the oeuvre desperately needs. And I hope that either you or some of your students or colleagues might be motivated to um, dive into Bradburn a bit. And I think once the course really becomes public uh, next after September, there will be a huge amount of interest in the man uh, compared with the negative interest that there has been, simply because people don't know much about him. I'll end, before we have some question time, with his funniest poem. Um, I love this one. It is called False Teeth. It's not on your handout. Uh, otherwise the punchline wouldn't work. <laughs> you ready? There sat a man at dinner, and a victual broke his plate. Sat next to him a thinner, whispered, Not to scratch your pate, I've got one in my pocket, which I feel you'll find will fit. He dived for it as he connived, in secret proffered it, and lo, it was the height of taste, and right as well. Fell too in haste the fellow, for a further course was following. He had to force until he broke replacement rare, and thought, it really isn't fair. But saith the breath next door, there, there, I've got another nigh the same. Passed it the hand. The hand did claim another winner. What's your name, and what profession, may I ask, that you carry supplies for such a task? You're not perchance a false teeth maker. No, no, said he, I'm an undertaker. <laughs> Good, eh? <laughs> there we are. Thank you very much.